Joe Riccio, and welcome to the Food Coma Podcast, Season 2, Episode 5. Uh, in this episode, we spent a lot of time kind of waxing nostalgic, if you will. Um, it certainly helps to be from uh, the Portland, Maine area. We talk about a lot of restaurants that have come and gone, trends that have come and gone, but uh, most of all, my guests and I seem to be most nostalgic when it comes to the traditional red sauce joint Italian restaurant. It's a style of food that I think uh, everybody has a strong opinion of. If you grew up in an Italian-American family like I did, uh, basically your whole idea of what red sauce and meatballs and all of that lasagna should taste like is based on what you have on Sundays at your grandmother's house. Uh, now I realize, you know, I understood this, but people like, you know, for instance, my father, uh, have doomed themselves to a life of being disappointed with every time they order any red sauce in any restaurant, and it's not exactly what their mom used to prepare. But, you know, you live and you learn sometimes. It's funny, Italian-American food actually bears so little resemblance to actual Italian food. I mean, essentially, it's just, you know, driven by a ton of butter, oil, you know, sweet wine, tomatoes, sugar, fried stuff. I mean, it's, you know, it, it certainly makes sense that it's the uh, American adaptation uh, of the style. But that's how it's supposed to be. Growing up, I actually had this uh, cookbook. It was called The Mafia Cookbook. Um, and looking back on it, actually, I still have it. Um, <laughs> look, Looking back on it, it's a very cringy book. The uh, the way it was written was, was very cheesy. Um, and actually, there was a revised version that came out, I think, because it came out sort of before The Sopranos and... And the uh, newly gained popularity of uh, of the mob, and that the the revised part is even more painful to read. This guy's just you know he was like a cook for a bunch of wise guys, and he uh, he seems to he thinks very highly of himself. Anyway, uh, he does he does make the point in the book when you're wondering why you know Italian American food is so heavy. It's like these guys eat every meal like it could be their last, and I I get that like that's you know and that's why you don't make low-fat, low-calorie, light versions of this food, unless you want to be really disappointed. It's like, if you're going to have spaghetti meatballs or lasagna or shrimp scampi or chicken marsala, you just go all out and make it the right way and maybe eat less of it or have it less, you know? That's kind of the way I feel about it. I think that one thing that's interesting is that with Italian cuisine, actual Italian cuisine, it's very simple, and it really relies on the quality of the ingredients. Whereas with Italian-American cuisine, and this is, you know, this is my opinion. I might be, a lot of people may disagree with me, but if you're making, like, a, a classic red sauce with, you know, some Italian sausages and, you know, brajol, uh, it, I don't think it's that important to buy the tomatoes that are, like, $14 a can, you know? I think any San Marzano from the grocery store are perfectly fine. I use cento when I'm making um, any of that kind of food. When I make bolognese, I put a little more thought into the uh, tomato selection. Uh, another thing is the cheese. Like, you don't need to buy the $22 pound uh, Parmigiano-Reggiano. Uh, you can just get the, you know, I like to use, like, the Locatelli uh, grated Romano uh, from, the, again, from the grocery store. It's just convenient. I buy it grated. I don't really care. I think it's just sometimes I, if I'm making meatballs or sauce and I just want to have that type of grated cheese there. I don't want to deal with the whole, you know, 
I don't want to deal with the grater. I like things to be streamlined. And speaking of, speaking of meatballs, uh, I think a lot a big mistake people make is uh, not putting enough breading in the meatballs. It should be kind of like, it's kind of like the, the idea behind making meatloaf, essentially. And I personally use both uh, soaked Italian bread uh, as well as breadcrumbs. And that gives a nice uh, dual texture. It makes the meatballs very soft. Uh, there's nothing worse than a dense meatball that's like... Usually, because it just, the flavor usually isn't there. Usually it's under season and it just, you know, a meatball is not just a ball of meat. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff that goes into it. Um, you know, but it's, it's all still pretty straightforward. Garlic, cheese, egg. Some people put parsley. Uh, I do. Uh, you know, beef and pork. I grew up only beef. I started adding pork. Some people swear by pork, beef, and veal. Um... I'll be honest, when it comes to three of them blending together, I am hard-pressed to notice the veal, and the veal usually is the more difficult one to find. Uh, so, whatever. If I have it, great. If I don't, I don't care. Uh, same thing applies to pasta. Uh, to Checo, perfectly fine. You know, Barilla, whatever. Like, you don't need to buy the crazy like, bronze dye, like, cat tongue texture, like, $12 a package... Uh, classically made pasta. I mean, you certainly can. It's not going to make things worse. Um, but for me, it's it's sort of, it, it seems out of place. Because those are pastas. Like, why would you buy a pasta that tastes really good if you're just going to drown it out with a bunch of fat and rich tomato sauce, you know, etc. Also, with the pasta, I like to... Uh, one thing I don't like is being uh, served a peeping plate of pasta, then the sauce ladled on top. So you have that awkward period where you have to like delicately mix it all together. You know, like take a separate bowl. I mean, if you have more pasta than sauce, take a separate bowl and sauce the pasta, then put it in the bowl, you know, then put everything else on top. Then you a little some more sauce on it. Just, you know, nobody wants half the pasta all over the table before you even start eating. But it's amazing. It's weird to have to say that. But, you know, people do it. They break the rules. The bread, I think you're probably noticing a theme here. I like the, you know, the grocery store style, fresh baked Italian bread, or if you have, you know, with old school Italian bakeries, it's a dense, it's a white bread, you know, there's no air pockets in it. It's hopefully got a nice, uh, crispy crust, soft inside. Um, you know, it's not like using a freshly baked loaf of sourdough bread is going to make anything bad, but again, it doesn't, it doesn't feel right. Like, you need a certain texture and a certain flavor from the bread, and you, know, you load it up with butter because why wouldn't you? There isn't enough butter and things already. Um, you know, the really good bread, you can save that for the, uh, the actual Italian food, you know? I actually thought it was funny. Like, the first time, I was so used to having bread and butter growing up and having it be the specific way that, I mean, I was even so, I was so thrown off the first time I went to a uh, slightly fancier Italian restaurant, and they poured olive oil table side for the bread instead of butter uh that kind of uh that was sort of mind-bending and I, you know of course i i tried it and i'm not saying i don't like it but again great olive oil salt pepper needs like really great bread grocery store bread just needs a ton of butter preferably Kerrygold. that's my go-to after talking about it now i'm actually gonna have to make uh make some sauce you know it doesn't matter that it's just a monochromatic calorie bomb i mean that's just that's that's what it is you want to just uh you know, relax. And when, when in doubt, add more oil, add more butter. And the one thing I will say, you know, you, in Italian-American cuisine, I think a lot of people overlook the importance of broccoli rabe. 
because you got to have some vegetables. And the traditional Italian-American meal, outside of the salad, which is usually iceberg lettuce, um, it's severely lacking. And broccoli rabe, not only is it really good for you and helps with your digestion, but it takes all the same components, you know, garlic, olive oil, really simple to make. And it's one of the few things you can actually have a plate of on the side with something like, you know, that goes with meatballs and pasta. It doesn't just get completely, you know, overpowered and it's just as delicious. So, you know, don't forget about broccoli rabe. And welcome to the Food Coma Podcast. Uh, our guest today is Joshua Miranda, uh, owner of Blythe and Burroughs and Via Vecchia in Portland, Maine, uh, but also a, a long-time, long-time bar staple in this town. Thanks for being here. Uh, thank you for having me, Joe. Absolutely. Um, so obviously we were just discussing, and it's pretty much what's on everybody's mind primarily right now is the... Uh, the difficulties, well, the timing of you happening to be opening a new restaurant, that being Via Vecchia, uh, during this whole pandemic. And it seems like you've been, I mean, from an outsider looking in, it seems like you've been weathering the storm okay. <laughs> I mean, some people are, you know, flipping out, and uh, you seem at least calm and collected about it. Um, that's the only way to do it. I mean, we're, we're all going through this. Everybody's going through it. Some people have a shittier hand than others. Um, and I guess trying to open a 150 seat restaurant in the middle of this is not ideal, but, uh, this is the hand I'm dealt. So, uh, I'm going to see what I'm made of. Yeah. I mean, it'll, it'll kind of, it's kind of trial by fire, you know? Uh, now you purchased the old space that used to be, um, Vignola. In Portland, long time Italian hey, restaurant. Didn't you do a few shifts there back in the day? Uh, I did sh- shifts at Cinque Terre back in there before Vignola oh. was even before Vignola even existed. Uh, that was when I first moved back from Chicago, and I was even more of a prima donna than I am now. Um, no, I, I can't see it. <laughs> somehow I was. I don't know how, but uh, yeah, we're, that was two thousand and I guess the three. Yeah, to the beginning ended ended two thousand two, beginning two thousand three. Where were you at that point in Portland? Believe it or not, I was in Miami. Yep. Yeah, I had... Uh, Were you doing the nightclub thing down there? I was actually in um, hotels. Yep. I worked at a place called Cafeteria, and um, I was there when it closed, the one on Lincoln Road, and that was a sad day because uh, it was a, one of my all-time favorite jobs. I worked Thursday, Friday, Saturday night at the point. I worked 9 p.m. to 5 a.m., um, but I made more money from 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. because um, all the other bars, the hotel yeah. bars came out, and I had all the regulars, and these guys came in. They wanted food. They yeah. wanted shots of Patron, um, and they tipped well, and it was it was a good gig. Yeah. I, uh, I had four days had four days off in a row. And you made more in, the, in like, six hours of the week. <laughs> Most people yeah. who work, you know, full 40 hours. Um, you know, I, worked... I, I had other... I had other jobs. I worked at a couple hotels down there. I had one gig where where um, it was just stupid money because in Miami, um, tip is included. Gratuity is uh, included on the checks. People are always um, double tapping you. Yeah, well, you know, I, I believe in responsible capitalism. I would always <laughs> let them know, hey, just, just let you know tip's included. Yeah. But people would, you it's know. It's weird not leaving being, a tip, though, I think. it's. I don't feel comfortable. Even if it's already on there. Dollars. 
Yeah, we charged eight dollars for a Bud Light, and the tip was included <laughs> on that. People would just leave me ten, so I'd be making three dollars for a Bud Light. Guys, come up, give me five Bud Lights. I'm like, okay, I'd make twenty dollars. Yeah, you know, <laughs> well, uh, like, back then, Grey Goose and Red Bull. Grey Goose and Red Bull, Johnny Walker. Uh, people in Miami love their Johnny Walker, but they would drink a Red Bull. That would be $17. Yeah. They would give me a 20 and three of that was already mine. So, right. <laughs> um, But I've never made more money or felt so broke. Yeah, because it's Miami. amazing when you're making money how much you can spend, especially when you're in that environment. And you're, you got those people, like you said, uh, when I worked in Chicago and the nightclubs, it was like that. I worked in a 4, a 3 a.m., uh, excuse me, a 4 a.m., 5 a.m. on Saturdays. That's how it is there. Uh, bar. Where the the club the, the the restaurant people would get out at two or three would come over eat drink like crazy you know and tip like insanity but at the same time like you have to reciprocate like you know you go out it's like you have to tip like an insane person it's just the way it is it all it's I always saw it as just putting it back in the pool you know and it's like we got to have a good time and pretty much live like we were making a lot more money than we actually were but you know it didn't really. Uh you know, have a lot to show for it in the end. <laughs> one, one of my boys I work with, right, he had a BMW convertible. He wore uh, True Religion jeans, Rockin' Republics. <laughs> he had a $5,000 bling watch. He'd be wearing uh, $200 shirts. I'm like, man, how do you afford all this stuff? He's like, I live at home in Hialeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that was Miami. Like, people were a show. But, I, you know, like I said, I made great money, but there was some serious money down there. And, um, I did well because I was personal, but the people down there, they, there was no bonds. You know, it was a tr transient city. Um, I felt like a servant where, um, at least here in Portland, it, it, it's just different, you know? It's a different time as well. And yeah. the, I mean, obviously Miami, I mean, you can't sidestep the whole drug culture part of the nightlife scene there, um, which fuels, you know, the money spending, the just the whole. It was, I, and it's funny. It was always people visiting that were like looking for that party because they've yeah. seen too many movies, right? <laughs> and uh, don't get me wrong, there is that culture there, but yeah. for a lot of people in Miami, that's not part of their. You know, there's probably more drugs in the old port than the West South Beach, to be honest with you. Yeah, but they're probably stomp huh. this shit here. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't know about that, but <laughs> you know, if you enjoy snorting B12. Um, Portland, it's a great place to be. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's important for everybody when they're, I mean, I'm assuming you were in your twenties at this point. No, nah, I was 30. Huh. It depends if you're single. I was 30. <laughs> I was, I moved to Miami when I was 31, 32. Nice. Yeah. It's just like, and then you look back, I'm like, I, don't know, I feel like one week of living how I used to live. Of course, I was in my early 20s. Uh, yeah. That would, would definitely kill me now in my early 40s. Well, I, I was in New York for about 11 years. and um, That was your 20s? In 20s. I was there yeah. from 18 to um, 29. Um, I left the summer before 9-11. I was supposed to go back. In the fall, and then 9-11 happened. I said, all right, I'm not going back to New York. And I said, what's next? And I said, you know what? Let me try Miami. Um, I had some relatives uh, in southern Florida. So I went down, and to this day, it was one of those things. I moved to a town. I didn't know anybody. I uh, walked up and down Lincoln Road. Are you hiring? Are you hiring? Are you hiring? Filled out a million applications. Got hired at a place called Cafeteria. 
And then um, I got back into the same hotel after the cafeteria closed. I went back into the hotel business. Um, there was a sister hotel uh, of a place I worked at in New York, and I started working there. And I just it was uh, the Dolano, and then I jumped ship to the Montreal and opened up. Yeah. So, um, but it, it, to move into a place and not know anybody uh, was really hard. But this is a cool story. I was walked up and down. Got an interview at cafeteria. They hired me on the spot. Um, went and rented a youth hostel for a week. I had two hundred dollars to my name. Spent spent a buck ninety for the youth hostel. I had ten dollars and I bought ten ramens. And uh, all that was said. I'm walking down and then I hear, "Hey, Josh!" I turn around and it's a kid I wrestled with in college. Uh, he was a uh, Believe it or not, he graduated from Harvard Law. He couldn't get a, a uh, license in Florida just yet because of financial things, and uh, he needed a roommate. Like when you're uh, when the, <laughs> when your week's up, you can move in with me. He was a single dad, and it was just one of those serendipitous moments where it's like my first day in Miami. I didn't know anybody. Finally got a job, hit the pavement, and then uh, somebody was looking out for me. That's amazing. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I actually got him. I got him a job yep. at, um, at at the same place. In, the cafeteria. Mm-hmm. He te- yeah, he tells me I got him. I, he was basically a day bartender barista, and that helped him get his finances in order. But um, when the, when the place closed, he's like, you know, I got to tell you something. This is the first job I haven't been fired from. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, what does that say about you? Yeah. Well, you know, it's <laughs> something about when you find. I think with with certain restaurants, and I think a lot of it it's in the city, where it's sort of a it's more of a big deal. You know, there is a lot more money being thrown around, and it's more of a career thing. I think it's easy to suddenly just like when you just get into the restaurant business, just be like, "This is wow! This was like custom designed for me." Like I always thought I was going to do like something that had to do with like I was always working retail, and it was like clothing and all this stuff. But the minute I worked in a restaurant. And, and saw what that was like. I literally would work like, I would pick up shifts every single day and work doubles because I'm just like, I love being here. I get to make a ton of money. We get to, you know, at the end, we get to all the drinks and like, you know, yeah. walk home. You get that, that just, you get so used to that just fist sized wad of cash in your pocket after the shift. Well, like I said, it, it's fleeting because, like you said, you, like, say you got, a, you worked at a place where you, Got out before the bars closed, and yeah, yeah you'd have a hundred dollars in your pocket, but you wake up with forty. Oh yeah, I mean, it would be more like I'd have like seven hundred in my pocket and wake up with twenty five, but I yeah. would find at least one rolled up hundred on the floor someplace yeah. in my room. <laughs> uh, so that was actually almost like my the way I had a savings account was if I roll it up and forget about it and don't think it's money anymore, I still have it tomorrow. But it was yeah. funny because we all like would you know. It was just so weird, you know, because like, I went from working in the four and five o'clock place, which is called Pasha, which was just ridiculous. Weird. Then I went to work at this place called Narcisse, um, which was a champagne and caviar bar where, like, literally every page had, that like... Has you written all over it. That oh, yeah. Every page was, like, dedicated to a different champagne house, and then they had, like, the whole, like, Petrosian caviar list. It was, you know, that was a specialty. Um, but it was just really just, like, you know, but it's very, very decadent. But, you know, we leave there at, like, two or, or three, whatever... And it's like we just go to all these same places that are just like the place we already work. <laughs> and like, you know, because you always know somebody back then, it was like, oh, we get to go to the VIP, or, you know, because you might as well if you're going in there. But the funny thing was everybody dresses the same in the business, so it's like you pretty much, you could just 
practically jump behind the bar because you're still in uniform <laughs> from work. Everybody's wearing guess. black. All black, black button down. Yeah, that's the thing. It's a, that's that's the thing, and it's also nice because if you are on a bender and you haven't been home for three days, you, know, you take a bird bath if you need to. It's black. You know, you can you can pass, <laughs> unlike people I, who have to wear white shirts. <laughs> I remember I showed my staff a video for some drink contest I entered in uh, on YouTube like in two thousand two, two thousand three. And we, um, I wore wristbands behind the bar. It was that kind of place. Um, wore wristbands? Tight, oh, yeah, wristbands. Just, oh, like for sweat? Know. No, that was just cool. That was kind oh. of a thing. You know? <laughs> okay, I don't, I don't know. What, you know, it's, it was, you like know, yeah. Fitnessy, sweat, fitnessy wristbands? Yeah. Oh, okay. And it, it was a kind of a chic place, and, I, and we matched it to our shirts, but we all had them. And they're like, you wore <laughs> wristbands? I'm like, that was, man, if I could wear wristbands now, bartender, I would. Yeah. I'd wear wristbands. I'd wear a dog collar. I'd do the whole thing. Just get, get it rolling. <laughs> that's what kind that's, of party we're about. <laughs> that's amazing. Now, I kind of wanted to get back to uh, just the whole nightclub and restaurant life kind of prior to all this. Because um, it's like you've you've opened Blythe & Bros. Was it two years ago now? Or three? Or three, three. Three, yeah. Three, yeah. yeah. Um, and before that, you were often managing places. Like you managed Pearl. And... Yeah, I was minority owner. Was my I actually oh, named minority, Pearl. Yeah. I built Pearl. I don't tell people that anymore because the Pearl that was at the end is yeah. not what I built. Right. Um, and I wish the people were like, oh, you have something to do with Pearl. I'm like, if you were there when we <laughs> built it, yeah. you'd be like, okay. Um, they actually just closed for good. Yeah, I heard that actually. Yeah, good riddance. It was um, what they did to it. It was, you know, um, it was. I heard if it was for a couple of reasons, but I, I don't see people wanting to pack it in anymore. You're not going to see 300 You're not going to, those places aren't going to thrive for a long time. Yeah. And, and honestly, like if, you know, you actually care when you put something together, when somebody takes things over and they're like, it just kind of runs itself and I'll let it run into the ground. And it does. People think it's just going to maintain forever. And it clearly does not. Um, and then you were at, uh, we had Fred Elliott on the show a few episodes ago. You were at spread. Yeah, well. me and Fred. It's Fred. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, one of the, the absolute worst names for a restaurant that's ever existed. Oh, my God. Yeah. Just the I worst, to talk dude. Them out of it. Yeah, they don't get it. No. And they're like, oh, no, like a spread of food. I'm like, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, but, <It's>, you know. <laughs> lost in translation. Yeah. There's lots, of, there's lots of terms for a spread of food besides spread that yeah. one could go with. Yeah. Um, and now, what did you? Know, you... I, I think about spread a lot, and uh, you know, I've always said this. I actually think the food coming out of the kitchen was really good. They had some talent back there. You had there. a lot of talent at the restaurant in general. Yeah, I, but I don't think I was the right fit for them. Yeah. Um, I don't. Uh, I think my bar program was more of a cocktail lounge, nine o'clock Saturday night. When that place should have been more food forward, but right. whereas um, they're like close to the I, kitchen at nine thirty, and I had too many regulars that were looking for that vibe, and the bar made a lot of money, and the space was so big, the owners that you know the owners told me do what you need to do to make money for the bar, and I said okay, and then at that point I, I only knew one direction, um, so I went with it. And I think it hurt the restaurant overall. I think the food got out. Outshadowed, overshadowed. Yeah. Well, if you have two different crowds coming in, you know. Yeah. And it's like, and plus, if you have people in the kitchen, 
who are just sitting around for hours early on. Like, that's just going to, I mean, anybody. Idle time for anybody in a restaurant. Yeah. But I mean, some worse than others. Me. Oh, yeah. They hated me, yeah. <laughs> hey, you got to you gotta be you, you know? You got to. Yeah. And you just do, and you were doing what you're told, and you were making yourself money, so God forbid. I have to say that the first time I really started to understand the nuances of really good coffee, uh, it was Speckled Axe uh, in Portland. Uh, that, that's where that happens. Uh, they've been making coffee. Matt's been around for a long time, kind of, you know, he's always been the guy showing people that you can buy really good coffee, but if you don't know how to make it, it's you might as well buy Taster's Choice, you know. Uh, I remember working in restaurants, he would come around and well, we'd actually serve the little individual French presses and he'd like have like staff training. And this is like, you know, 2007, 2008. So this is before, you know, I feel like that would be more of a commonplace thing. Coffee's a little more popular, but his shop is Speckled X Coffee. It's at 567 Congress Street in Portland, Maine. Uh, you can check it out at speckledaxe.com. S-P-E-C-K-L-E-D-A-X.com. No E at the end. Uh, you know, he roasts using a vintage uh, Italian Petroncini fired with local hardwood, uh, which it looks like most kind of industry quality roasters, but instead of a series of gas jets, uh, there's a firebox beneath the brick line uh, steel drum. So that really makes the flavor unique. I mean, of course, he purchases great coffee, uh, participates you know, in, the, in fair trade practices, which is really important. Um, he has both blends and single origin coffees. And I can highly recommend, you know, if you're a coffee nerd or you just, you know, maybe want to try something a little different, go to speckledaxe.com or if you're in the Portland area, swing by the shop and check it out. Something that's really interesting to me uh, about Portland, Maine and the whole reputation we have now is the sort of titanic disaster that the Portland public market was. Uh, in oh, the early yeah. 2000s. Like, it was just one of those things now. And your your father had a wine shop in there. Yes. Miranda's Vineyard. Miranda's Vineyard. He was one of, I think, six vendors that was there the first day and there on the last day. That's, which is, I mean, Shawnee. And Shawnee was there because, you know. Yeah, he, lost, he lost his shirt. Now, I don't know if he lost his shirt, but the place never made money. But my dad... Got a great wine collection. I got a yeah. good bottle every sure. Christmas. Yeah. I mean, that's the that's the benefits. Uh, it's almost like in High Fidelity. Like, the benefits of owning a, a shop where, that involves things you're obsessed with is if it doesn't go well, at least you get to consume it all. Um, yeah. But that place, so looking back on it, I mean, if it, was, if it happened now, it would be insanely different. I mean, it would be, well, it would be open. It just was so badly mismanaged. I mean, there were 28 vendors... Uh, 20 seasonal sidewalk vendors. And in the end, it just became a place for like high school kids to go during study hall and homeless people to use the bathroom. Yep. Um, you know, there's, there's, I, being from Portland and knowing its history, I try to learn, I try to learn a lesson from the places that do well, but also to learn from the places that don't. Oh, like, I think why those are the place, more important lessons sometimes. Why did this place fail, you know? Um, and there's a couple of examples that come to mind. But the public market, on paper, sounds like a brilliant idea. It's yeah. basically Whole Foods, 
but three blocks away. Well, it was like, yeah, it's like a Whole Foods that they cross with like the Pike Market vibe. But I mean, there's obviously no like fresh fish market. You know, there's no, it's not on the water, right on the water. But you know, it was, and it was, it was, it was beautiful. I mean, the what? It was amazing, especially at night. You see pictures of it, and I was actually doing a little research prior to this, and there's just like really no record of it out there on the. It's like you can find some pictures, but like there's, it is almost like it was wiped from history. They had some great restaurants. I don't know, original commissary was in there. I worked at the Marketside Grill, which was the yeah. one after commissary, which was like the whole staff. It was like me. It was like a whole a bunch of people from Cinque Terre, like a like, ton of people from Four Street, Street and Company. Like, it was just this like kind of all-star team. And that's where I met Krista Kern or Krista Kern. Did you like, um, she was a pastry chef there. She had just come back from Vegas working for Guy Savoie. You know, and we have this like insane right. restaurant. And it just and at the, the build end, out, the build out of commissary was gorgeous, and then you had scales on the other side, the original scales. Yeah, which, mean, was, which was great. And then the top side bar, there was like there was like a bar and lounge up the stairs. Then the middle, you had all these produce vendors and meat, but, but it was always strange, like who they chose to run yeah. the actual. I was always like, these are like sort of like, you know, when you go to the main mall and then go to the food court. Like, you don't eat there, but you walk through it, and you're like, I've never heard of any of these chains before. Like, this Philly cheesesteak thing, this chicken place, I've never heard of them. That's how I always felt with the vendors in the public market. I was always like, this is a really strange choice. Like, year one and two, and then year three and four, it, was, it did change, um, yeah. the stuff they had. I remember there was one Asian place that had this pork katsu. That yeah, I uh, my friend just... Nolan worked at it. It was uh, Oishi. Yeah, I, it was phenomenal, and there was a guy that did... Bison beef jerky. That was so good. It's so and, and it's so random. Uh, it's like all these things. And there's that one guy who did El Mirador. He had the these chorizo and egg burritos with oh, the Chipotle yeah. saw. And they were like I didn't really like anything else there, but I did love those. It was just so weird. Yeah. It was like the it, it started as this big deal and all this money behind it. And in the end it was just like if you could leave a place to you know how they say that like you know, like they'll talk about like Congo, or whatever, and there'll be like these elaborate film sets from the fifties when they were, you know, Humphrey Bogart and all these people were shooting there or thirties or whatever. And how eventually people lose interest in the places just recede into the jungle, you know, like that sort of like takes over the whole building and just forgotten. That's how the Portland Public Market. It's almost like it just got overtaken by like office space and stuff. And then slab is at the end, but it was like yeah. I remember. It had a couple, I wasn't there for the death rattle, but like, it was the kind of place where on my last day working at that restaurant, I had come in and it was the kind of thing where at this point we would pretty much be like, like the, the, the rotation on servers was like, I got a table yesterday, so you're up today kind of deal. And uh, <laughs> it was bad. I was already on my way. I already had two jobs lined up. I knew I was gone, but um, I came in to work a double. Like it's and, just uh, tough. It's, it's, oh, it was yeah. a tough location. Yeah. And and, and uh, during and then the breakfast was one other server, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to go to the other side to the bar and drink. And if we get any tables, just call me. And so, you know, this is like 11 in the morning. You know, next thing you know, it's 2.30. I didn't get a call. Next thing you know, the whole kitchen staff's showing up. Next thing you know, and we I knew we had like six people on the books that night. And I'm, I'm like, I'm this kind of guy. I'm just an immature, you know, I'm a child. So... We start, like, prank calling in reservations, like, everybody was taking turns, like, the waitress, calling in, like, tour buses. There was, like, we, put, we put, like, 75 people on the books, and we come back, and, we're, and we all go back hammered at, like, 
five. And I had to be the one, and they're all flipping out, putting tables together, and, and like, it was a crazy night, and I had to be the one, like, actually, we only have six people coming in. That's fake, that's fake, that's fake. And I remember the the owner, the manager at the time, he was the manager, like, rather than be angry, he just looked so defeated, and he didn't really even say anything. He just kind of, and I was like, also, I'm going to give my notice, I'm, I think my last day is today. And he just, <laughs> just kind of walked away, and then he went home. And that was, and then that night, I remember... Was just we just drank all the silver oak, uh, in the kitchen, <laughs> and uh, oh, wow. I used to drive this '82 Lincoln Continental that was like two tone turquoise. Uh, it oh, was yeah. amazing. And uh, yeah. at the end, like there was this new manager who was like trying to be an enforcer, and and I remember I just took all the candles off the table and I flipped the wax all over the windows, and we just took off like giving him the finger from outside, like as he's trying to scrape the wax off the windows, and that was that. That was the last time I really uh, spent any time in the public market. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it was funny is that um, one of the things that was against Marina's Vineyard is that um, some guy opened a wine, a, a wine shop across the street where Katie is now. Maritage. Yeah, no, it was called Market Wines. Oh, Market Wines. Right, right, right. Yep. So, you know, Maritage was the wine bar. Yeah. So that hurt us a little. And, um, my dad was on the impression you can only charge 30% markup for retail wine. Okay, that's fine. Yep. But um, the original deal with the public market is that you had a flat rate and then a percentage of your sales. And my pop knew everybody. I knew everybody. He's like, oh, give them 5% off. Give them 20% off. Give them 20% off. Yeah, and you're and like, like, oh, that's you... all the margin. That's, like, yeah, that's... that's it. That's it. Yeah. So, it. So that's, I got paid in wine. And I, I didn't really get paid. It was Catholic family guilt that I had to work there. Yeah. Um, well, we both know how strong that can be. You know, you want to know what's funny is that, um, so I went to high school next door. And I remember coming back and some of my boys had, used to be Elm Street cleaners right there. And yeah. yes. They had yes, in the parking garage, right? Like at the, No, at the... no. Before the parking garage, Elm okay. Street cleaners used to be across the street where the public market is. Okay. They actually had, they had a rehearsal space. It was kind of a basement on the side. They had a rehearsal space that they rented, and there was a couple other bands in there. Brand Tiddlers had a space in there with Twitch Boy. Yep. Who was the hair metal band in the 90s that was big around Portland? Uh, they had I a space in there. do not remember. They were huge. They were like... The I only told band you, I remember in Portland in the 90s is Rustic Overtones. I wasn't really... They, they were the hair band before Rustic Overtones. Not that Rustic Overtones was the hair band. Right. But they were the, these, these guys were the hair band. They had a space in there. And me and my friends were trying to do a Beastie Boys cover band. Um, we were called <laughs> the, Johnny Ra the Johnny Rials. Nice. <laughs> you know, how, how did it pan out? No, um, we were real good in practice, but we never really... It was all politics, you know... A lot, yeah. of, a lot of egos aside, but no, it was a good place for us to drink and smoke back in the day before we could go out and drink and smoke. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it was funny, fast forward years later, they tore it down, and the exact space where our rehearsal space was, was where Miranda's Vineyard was. Oh, so literally it was in that, wow, that's crazy. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. And <laughs> like, well, if these walls could talk. Yeah, yeah, I loved Miranda's Vineyard. It was like one of the first places that I ever got turned on to like wines from small distributors, like Easterly, you know. And it was just your dad being like, "This is a new thing. That's good. you know, it's not all three distributors anymore." I'll say this: um, at one point, I knew my wines. I did. I could tell you vintages and and the vintners and all this, and I could blind taste test. And uh, 
You lose it, Joe. But there's also uh, there's it. a lot more to know now, and I think really that the more you get into wine, I mean, I worked in wine for ten years, and you know, I'm, I I drink it constantly, and it's just I think the more you get into it, I think there's the more you realize you don't know. Yeah, uh, there's just and and you know you couldn't get wines from like back in the day you could get wines from like you know Bordeaux, Burgundy, Burgundy California, Italy, Germany. You know, like you couldn't you didn't have a lot of wines from like Savoie, Jura, or you know like really obscure places like Corsica. So there's just so much more to know now, um, which I guess can be can either keep it interesting or it can also make it sort of uh, a bit overwhelming, but. It, as long as you have your basis, I feel like in wine that's enough, and as long as you're not pretentious about it, I think that's that's really all you need. Um, I'm sure in your lifetime you've eaten in a lot of Italian restaurants, been in a yeah. lot of Italian restaurants. You know, when somebody says they could open an Italian restaurant, I mean, your knee-jerk reaction is usually be like, okay, like, A, is it like a red sauce joint? B, you know... Is it going to be like over pretentious or, you know, like what was your, um, you know, primary motivation? I or should say a couple factors. Yeah. I, I haven't worked into a true Italian restaurant since I was a dishwasher at 14 at the Village Cafe. Yeah. I remember the Village Cafe. Uh-huh. Um, I worked Friday, Saturday nights as a dishwasher. It was, uh, yeah, it was an interesting job to say the least. And that but, would be a red uh, sauce joint. Is a red sauce joint. I yeah. think the red sauce joints are kind of fading in a way. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of Italian restaurants, a lot of competition. When this space came up, I looked at it hard. And I looked at both sides and I, what do you see in there? What would work in there? And I always wanted to use the back for PDRs. And, um, with PDRs, you need to do food in large formats. And, and you look at that building, and I don't see it being Mexican. No. And even, though you did tell, build- even though you did tell that one lady that it was going to be a taco bar. <laughs> <laughs> taco and tequila. Yeah, taco and tequila bar for the uh, hard-hitting it, reporting. It, oh, <laughs> you could have seen Carla's face when, I, when she read that. I, <laughs> I would pay big money for that. Yeah, I was pretty <laughs> impressed. I was she cringes whenever I speak on paper. That yeah. poor woman. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Carla. You know, she she knows she knows how to do PR the right way, but it doesn't mean yeah. you can't have some fun sometimes. Yeah, no, it, I yeah, it, I <laughs> we I try to. Um, Channel Eight News was looking for a sound bite last night on on in response to Dr. Shaw uh, quote, and um, I hid. Yeah. Yeah, and I was like, there's no way, anything I say, I'm going to piss off 50% of the people one way or the other. Uh, yeah. I'm in the middle of what everybody feels, but there's one extreme into the other extreme, and it's a no-win situation, so I don't think me giving a quote would be no, beneficial in any way. Going back to uh, Via Vecchia, I just looked at the space, and um, it was a couple factors. One, what kind of food, cuisine would you think would go good in a large format? And I know Italian food. I mean, how many banquets have you been at the Taj Henry Center? I mean, I've been to two. That's it? My parents weren't really super active. They were, like my other relatives were members. My dad's brother, like he's a member. But like my dad never. 
when Shevers had their football banquet at the end of the year, where was it? Uh, it was it was actually I thought it was at Chevrolet because we were using the, the well, we'd have the, the we'd have the banquets before the games, and that was always in the in the in the gym. But I want to say maybe right. it was at the Eagles Club or Italian Heritage. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I yeah. so that everyone I ever had was that Italian Heritage. I mean, it was always pedestrian Italian food. Um, not that you know, um, but I also well, sometimes Italian food real- is like that is about where you're having it too. It's like it can yeah. be, it can get away with a little more. You know, like when I said, I was happy people. as shit at the fucking Olive Garden last night. I mean, what yeah. the, you know. But I and I also I wanted to do a um, an Italian focused bar, a cocktail bar. I wanted to have a bar program. The place is going to be more restaurant forward, a lot more forward compared to Black and Burroughs. But I wanted to have a um, a bar program based on Italian cordials. Oh, cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So a lot of Amaro and a lot of uh, oh, yeah. Strega and whatnot. Um, yeah. Now, anybody who doesn't know, Blythe and Burroughs is a, uh, I would call it a cocktail bar, even though cocktail bar tends to, I think, conjure up certain imagery these days. Uh, it lacks the, in my mind, the pretension of your average cocktail bar. Uh, and it's the kind of place where I actually like, you know, normally I don't think that liquor needs to be with anything in a glass. Uh, I think it's happy by itself. Um, but I like the cocktails of Blythe and Burroughs. I'm actually always happy to drink them and be a, a guinea pig when they're working on new ones, even though I go back to sh- uh, you know shooting tequila and drinking white wine shortly yeah. after. Um, you, 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 you come full circle, but I remember the first time you had a drink. I help. And I, and I know I always knew um, you always liked your white wine, Sav Blanc. If I, if I yeah. gave you Chardonnay, you'd throw it in my face. Yeah. Um, I mean, California Chardonnay. Most yeah. Of them. And then, uh, and you like your tequila, but when you got a drink the one time, you're like, "Wow, that's actually good." You were, I could see it in your face, pleasantly surprised. And all of a sudden, you saw the lights dim during the twilight. You're like, "Okay, I get it. This place, you know." Yeah, um, and also, but I mean, if I if you drink the way I do, and you have 25 drinks in a sitting or in a night or 30, you can't drink cocktails. No, you cannot. Like you can't have 30 cocktails. You cannot. You could, but you you don't want to. You there's just that's why I don't like all the other things that are in there. No matter how good they taste, I'm like, okay, I'll have one or two, two at the most. Um, and that's and what I, the pe- yeah, that's what the average is. People are doing any anywhere from one to three cocktails. We'll we'll get some hardcore people visiting sometimes, and they'll go through our entire cocktail menu um, with other people, and they'll try them. Like a four top comes in, yep. they'll all they'll order everything off the menu. They'll all try it, but. Um, Going back to the non-pretentious, at the end of the day, where I'm making a dollar a tip for for busting your, your drinks, and there's no pretension there. We're bartenders. We're we're here to serve you. We want to talk to you. And it's one of the few not... crowded places in the old port that I will go. Yeah, and I don't I, I don't go to that. crowded yeah. bars in the old port. And no, you can, it's you know. it's it's too much sometimes. I get it, yeah. you know. But it's worth. Uh, I have such, I always have such a good experience there. That I'm uh, I'm happy to do it. You know, once I get a, I find a perch at the bar, and it's filled with other people. You know, it's like it's of course like half the Friday night warriors, but then it's like a lot. Again, you, you attract a lot of restaurant people and like people I want to see and hang out with, um, which I think is great. So anyway, I want to give a little context to Blythe and Burroughs in in yeah. contrast of Via Vecchia. So, with Via Vecchia, I, I wanted to 
build a bar program centered around Italian cordials and do, do stuff in the old school way. It's such a beautiful building. And we actually built it out. Uh, we totally, you, you're not going to recognize it when you see it. Um, but you're going to look at it like this feels like this was the bar that was here when this building was built. Um, and I'm, I'm, was that building initially a bar? No, it was, I think it was, a, I have a picture of it. It was a grocery store. And then it was a charter room in the uh, Chiquitera side was a charter room for mats and stuff, uh, maps. They used to have um, and they had up that in Dun, the Dun Roman was there, right? That there was like then Shipwreck of Cargo was there in the early eighties, I think. I thought Shipwreck of Cargo was like where like Mims are next to They moved there. Oh, okay. But I remember I, I bought I remember it was like a seafaring place, but I remember you could get like Mariner stuff, but I actually bought a peacoat there in like 1987 for 50 bucks. It was an authentic peacoat. Yeah, and which actually you you can still rock that. Whatever. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I have I, I I've upgraded to a leather one. I have a black and brown one. <laughs> nice. I noticed you went with a lot of the gilded set. A lot of a lot of things are gilded, is what I saw. Yeah, I hope you don't have an aversion to brass and gold because no. there's a lot in. Um, but there's an old school vibe. We, uh, we went a little overboard. It's, it's approachable though. It's not too, uh, hoity toity. Um, uh, we're really looking forward to people seeing it because it doesn't look like anything you've ever seen in Portland. It yeah. doesn't. Uh, yeah. And it's, there's the attention to detail that I put into this, that we put into this. Um, at times it was overwhelming and we would have an idea of what to find, what we wanted and to find it and to get it. During this, during all this, try find try finding find something online and getting a shipped here. That you, it was it's was yeah. beyond ridiculous. Yeah, and then uh, having all that momentum, and then having the wind knocked out of you. We the, were you know. scheduled for inspection the day after St. Patty's Day, and they called me on Monday and said, "Yeah, we're not coming in." So, say uh, levy. Yeah, it was just. But again, it's like. At least you're all set up, <laughs> you know. At least, at least, I mean, I, I feel like it's almost worse if you're actually open. You know, if you would, ju- I feel like there are some places that literally just open that week, you know, and you already have yeah. food, you already have food and everything, and you're already, you know, it's like you've already spent yeah, money on that. We would have lost momentum, but even now, it's like I know if um, pre-COVID, if we were going to do a, a opening party, it would be quite the spectacular event. It would be um, a big event. A lot of people that you would know and mostly like would be there. Yeah. Um, I can't have it now, which is fine. We're, I mean, this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. But it would have been nice to have that one really big night where I saw everybody. Um, well, as long yeah. as you have space for me to hold court, I guess we'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I ask, Josh. I, I just want to be able to hold court. I have, I have you the crew for you. <laughs> you know, the king in the castle. King in the castle. Yeah. That's how I do it. So I'm going to keep doing it. Um, I, I kind of wanted to... Uh, I feel like who we are now is sort of like, you know, when you've worked in so many restaurants and bars, like, you have to have so many experiences that, like, completely, like, demoralize you and kind of, like... Uh, to kind of get you here, I think. I feel like you have to make a lot of mistakes. Like you said, it's almost like to figure out the right way to do it. Um, I didn't yeah. know if there was anything like that that stood out to you as far as really cringy moments from your Miami or New York years. 
I, you know, the majority of stories, you know, I, I've always said there are only 100 things can go wrong in a restaurant. Yeah. Um, it's having a contingency plan when those things happen. Sometimes 50 of them happen at once, but, you know, power goes out, credit card machine goes down, no ice, uh, you got a leak in the basement, fight breaks out, uh, no hot water, uh, been through all this. Uh, and you were saying uh, you had to, the, 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 you had to take the mirrors off the walls in the bathroom downstairs or the, the yeah. pictures because people kept taking them down, blowing lines off them. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I had to weed out in the beginning. There was a lot of that element, and I um, I did my best to try to weed it out, told people don't come back in, took the mirrors There was a guy off. who had a, owned a bar in Chicago I knew who was having that problem, that people would always be doing it off the back of the toilet. And so yeah. he used to, he used to like spread white pepper Bam. on the toilet. Yeah. yeah. I, I, yeah. Oh, they do uh, Pam on it. Yeah. So. What um, would Pam do to stick to it? Yeah. It would ruin it. And you, you yeah. hear someone screaming. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then every now and then, if I did that, I would see a, uh, a hole punched in my wall. <laughs> uh, you know, the majority of stories I had, I was always in the hotel. I remember when I was in college in New York, I worked the overnight at the Royal Tent. And the Royal Tin was an Ian Schrager property, yep. and it was uh, de designed by Felipe Stark. But I don't know a lot of people. Um, Ian Schrager was the owner of Studio 54. 54. Yep. So this was a. I worked. Uh, I worked the overnight, and we had a tight knit crew. We all lived in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, back when it was cheap and not so cool. We we drove. We carpooled in together. We carpooled out. Um, but there were so many stories from that that I tell people all the time, it's just craziness. Like all the celebrities, the stuff that happens, um, a lot of that was revolved around that. I remember um, checking in P. Diddy, not knowing he, who he was. Yeah. Like, he yeah. wanted to pay cash. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna need to see your ID, sir. And the next day, one of the day people was like, you don't know who that is? I'm like, no, should I? This was before uh, Biggie broke, Biggie uh, died, and he was yeah. big, but I guess I should have known who he well, was. Well, he was still, yeah, he was um, still visible at that point. Yeah. yeah. So I remember I got promoted to the night manager job, and um, Pete Townsend was staying in one of the penthouses. And he had a show in Boston for Quadrophenia. So he was going away for two nights and coming back. Well, for some reason, sales hooked it up where they needed that room for a night. So Pete Townsend, there was an adjoining standard room next to the pe next to this penthouse. So he was all, um, he moved all his things to the standard room. We used the room, cleaned the room up. We moved his things back. He came in back around 2 in the morning and uh, checked into his room. And um, we had moved all the stuff for him. He didn't like that. He called up the front desk. This is my first time. He didn't like manager. that you did move his stuff or you didn't? Yeah, we that we did. Oh, yeah. And he called up and, and I see his name come up on the caller ID from the room. And good evening, sir. And he goes, <laughs> you fuckers, you went through my drawer in the British accent. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, no, man, I'm a big fan of you guys. I have a Who's Next t-shirt, you know? But... Yeah. uh <laughs> he was a little crabby, but I just assured him we were trying to um, extend every courtesy and make his transition back to the hotel seamless, and that the overnight Asian housekeeper who doesn't speak English doesn't know who you are, yeah. let alone anything. <laughs> we um, wanted it done right. He, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he was like, he, he calmed down. In fact, I think he felt guilty because he snapped on me. He came down yeah. and gave me a 50. 
Um, <laughs> See, that's, and that's, I'm a, that's classy. I'm a mumbler, though, and I know he has a hearing <laughs> problem. So as he came to the front desk, I'm making sure he can read my mouth and everything. Yeah. And I was like, Mr. Townsend, sir, and I'm just over-enunciating. And he's just looking at me real weird. So that was, yeah, that was uh, one of my first stories of um, yeah, Pete Townsend. Yeah, that's freaking amazing. I, I, uh, oh, it's funny, but you brought up Puffy. I, I was working at a hotel in Portland back in, like, 2004, and um, Mace came in. Um, yeah. Mace, he was the other one, the other yeah. on the bad boy crew, whatever. And, um, he had come in, of course, at this point, like nobody gave a shit about Mace anymore. Uh, and I remember he had ordered some, uh, champagne up to the room, for room service. And on the way up just for fun, I was in the elevator and I took the ball out and I just shook it up as hard as I could for like a solid minute, uh, and put it back in the thing and then just gave it to him at the door. I don't know. I was just, I, I thought, I, you know. Maybe that was a kind of a dick move, but I don't know why I felt like harassing Mace and making his bottle of champagne explode. Or I just, you know, <laughs> I just wanted to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, you know, it's. I was like, fuck Mace. I um, yeah, it, a lot of cringy moments. There's one at that that champagne and caviar place where it's funny. Where you know, I feel like if you're gonna have an ego in a restaurant, if you're gonna be like a prima donna, you can't make mistakes. Like, because then you can't give other people ammunition. You know, if you're going to yeah. be an ass, then you better not make mistakes. You better actually be good at your job. Uh, so that way it's like they can't say, you know, you're incompetent. They can just be like, you've an attitude. But there was this one table. I remember I was carrying a tray of drinks in one hand. And I walked by this table and literally I had like, there was like, and this is the, you know, 2000s. There were like Cosmos on there and some other stuff. And this guy was like lighting a cigarette back in the smoking side. And I went, I had a lighter in my pocket, like a Zippo. I went to take it out and light it for him, you know, thinking I was being all smooth. And I just lost track and I, I unloaded that whole tray of drinks onto him while I was trying to light his cigarette. <laughs> just like felt it coming from the others. No. Like I tipped forward and just the momentum and that whole. <laughs> and so it's just like, how do you, you know, you know, you're trying to be cool and then you just are the world's biggest asshole. That's the contrast, yeah. you know? I was working at this place. Uh, it was inside the Mondrian, and it was a the bar was uh, the restaurant was called Asia de Cuba. It was kind of a chain. Yep. Um, this was the first one in Miami, and um, we were all dressed in white, and everything in the place was white. And we kind of did. Um, it was kind of a working flare, not too much of a flare, just one flip or something. And I remember I did a flip, and the bottle dropped and smacked on the bar. It didn't break. Right. Well, a woman at the bar got scared and she went, oh, and she moved her hands and knocked her glass of red wine all over a couple next to her. Yeah. yeah. So it's like a chain reaction. So, yes, clearly this is my fault. The woman is embarrassed, but she's angry at me because I made her do it. <laughs> and I was like, you know, and because and I, you know, customer's always right, man, I'm sorry. Um, didn't mean to scare you. The other couple was actually kind of cool about it. But the woman who actually spilled the wine just made it even more of an issue yeah. where it's just like, okay, you don't have the red wine on you. The people will do. And it was just, that was a horror story. Yeah, when people get in that fight or flight insecure mode, defensive, like, they'll keep, you know, they'll take so it. That, to, that, yeah. that was my last day of doing work in Flair. No more flips for me. <laughs> you know, I think Flair kind of went out with Tom Cruise anyway. I mean, yeah. I, it's, it's great you if know, you're... You, I go back and watch that movie, right? And um, I, and, I, and I'm looking at the counts. The movie is so in. absurd. 
<laughs> and I was just like, oh, what the fuck did he just make? Oh, yeah. you know, I'll still do co- for Conglin. We all, you know. Why you didn't you tell me a funny. Cuba Libre was a rum and coke? Yeah. Like, because you should know that, A. Do you, do you know what bar that was, though? No. What bar was it? Friday's? It was a Friday. Yes, I didn't know that because of the uniforms. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, oh, like, oh my God, it's a Friday's. But yeah, I guess that was um, oh to be bartending in those days. Well, Friday's, it's funny. I had this friend. That was the golden age of bartending, really. Oh, yeah, because, well, the 80s and 90s are the golden age of working in restaurants because nobody fucking paid attention how much you made. So, like, you you could declare, like, 30 bucks, and you'd be walking with, like, you know, 500 cash. Like, no, there was just no way because everything was cash. You know, yeah. like, and no, but nobody also cared. There was no, like, oh, servers make too much money. Oh, blah, blah, blah. You just got to fly under the radar and make a shitload of money. And and that was and that was great. Um, but the funny thing was, I think it was 2002, about Fridays, uh, my friend Ray was living in San Diego at the time. And I had gone to visit him. And he was, and when I got there, he was, like, one of the first places he suggested we go was a Friday's. And I was like, like what? Like, because, you know, I, all I knew was, like, the one that was up by the mall here where, like, Captain knew, you know, that, I'm like, yeah. Friday's. But I didn't realize that, like, in some places, like, Friday's, like, it's going off there. Like, it was, like, this crazy scene. It was like, super fun. Like, there was one, there was one on Ocean Drive and Fifth in Miami that my my, my boy loved. He, he I, I don't know if it was the uh, Jack Daniels Chicken, chicken tenders that he was yeah. in love with. He's like, can we just <laughs> go there? And I was like, all right, fine. I, I mean, I can eat anything. Give me, you know, um, I can eat anywhere pretty much. So I, I would go. He just, that was his jam. I don't get it, but yeah. Yeah, and then you're like, I guess Friday, it, it, people get obsessed with it. And I will say I had a really good time. I was expecting to have a I think low expectations are also the key sometimes in life. You know, when you're just like, ah, oh, this is going to suck. <laughs> and then, you know. Joe, what's your question? What? So you're a Portland boy too, and I always play the uh, remember game with people who've been around. You remember this I restaurant? You remember this restaurant? Mm-hmm. And I mean, the shelf life of a restaurant really is anywhere from ten to twenty years. Right. <coughs> Even, unless you're you Demillos. Um, yeah, unless you're Demillos. Um, you know, you want something funny? I never ate at Demillos until about ten years ago. I mean, I never really had a reason to. My family didn't go to Demillos growing up, so we no. never went. No, like, we were. I was Village Cafe. We were yep. Village Sportsman's you know, Grill. Um, Sportsman's not Grill. even Maria's. Yep. Like I, I'd go to Maria's in high school. But my family didn't go there. I've only been to Maria's twice. Maria's back when I was growing up had a reputation of being like the fanciest restaurant in Portland. Yeah, it was sort of like it was like a scene out of Goodfellas or something. Is what you imagine. Yeah. Everybody dressed up. Everybody's you know, it's like going. But anyway, yeah. The so way wore a vest, and I was like, "Oh my god, the way he's wearing a vest, he's so dressed up." <laughs> but insane. what are some of the old restaurants that, if it was open today, you would go, you would stand in line for? Uh, of the old restaurants that, if they were open today, and this is okay, we're talking about Portland, Maine. Uh, if you are from Portland, Maine, feel free to join in in your head. Uh, you know, I always really loved. Perfetto. Uh, oh yeah, I love that you know, that, that caponata. Like, is a mentor of mine. Yeah, that pepperonata yeah. they served you with the bread was like nothing I'd ever had in my life. That was when I was working at Joseph's in the Old Port in high school, and I was working at that cigar cafe, the Habana Room, which was yeah. really pretty. Same people as the Calabash. Uh, I would yeah. say Perfetto, and I would say just to add another one into the mix. Uh, 
Um, I, lo- I love the 90s. The 90s are like a very, like 90s restaurants have a very comforting vibe to me. There's a warmth to them that I, uh, it's hard for me to explain. Um, but I really loved that restaurant, uh, well, Michaela's, which was in Monument Square. And also uh, Auberg- oh, Aubergine, yeah. which was where 555 was uh, as well. Yeah. Yeah. They just have that, they have this very 90s feel to them. But that was like when the 90s, it was like, you know, there was still a little bit of stacking going on. But yeah, you know, good, good, good places. Yeah. I mean, sure, I miss the Village Cafe, but it's more like the smell of like cigarettes and coffee and my grandparents that, you know, like it was a yeah. pure nostalgia thing. I remember waiting in line on Saturday nights at the Village Cafe. It was a huge entryway. You'd be oh, there yeah. for an hour. You know, but, oh, yeah. you know. They and that hallway, that, 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 that kind of went up the ramp kind of a little a, bit. Yeah. They had the surf and turf. They had the Honey Dijon Haddock with Ritz crackers. Yeah. Hell yeah. I remember being a dishwasher there. I was trying to gain weight from football. And the owner was like, you can have all the bread and milk you want. And that's all I used to do all shift long. As <laughs> Their bread was freaking the, delicious. The bottle, <laughs> the bottle bread. And I used to get the Italian dressings just to dip it in for a little moisture. But, yeah, I gained, uh, <laughs> I gained some weight for that. Nice. So I would think. My, I would miss um, for breakfast the Eel Pancake or DeFelopos. I don't know if you remember those places. DeFelopos was where um, CB, CBD is now or CBG on Carter I never Street. went. Yeah, I don't remember DeFelopos. I never went there. Yeah, that was the it was a diner. So that was a breakfast place. Lunch, um, it just closed a couple of years ago. They moved a couple of times, but I miss Full Belly Deli. Yeah, there's nothing. I mean, obviously there's Rose Foods now, but it's very different than Full Belly Deli was. Yeah, I know. Like, there's a couple things you can't, you agree. just can't get. And yeah. yeah. And plus, it was like $8 for a sandwich that was like the size of your head. Yeah. I, um, dinner is a toss up. I don't know, 80s places, 90s places. I remember like in Carver's back in the day. Carver's uh, saw the sandwich driven menu. Yeah. I still, you know, I like my Sammy's. Um, Gourmet sandwiches. I, that was the, you know. <laughs> I miss my old Walters. I do. Yep. Um, the crazy chicken they had. Um, trying to think. Corn Street Cantina. Another oh, yeah. place. Yeah, except when they put wasabi and mashed potatoes, which does not belong in mashed potatoes. Other than that, Corn Street was all right. <laughs> I'm like, I don't I need green mashed potatoes. The, the Honolulu pork was legendary. <laughs> That's what I love about food and I love about old restaurants. It's like just, you know, the enduring memories, you know, like even t- like, like today when we were surrounded by restaurants and we've been to a million places, but just those like are so ingrained like the yeah. first time i ate that pepperonata at perfetto i was like i can't this i can't believe how delicious this is like yeah <laughs> you know like you may see, you, I, you know what joe i'm gonna look it up get the recipe and when you come in at via vecchia I'll, I'll make sure that you have it all right well you know what i'm told that uh my friend dave smith who uh he's around portland i've heard that he was the one of the chefs there back then and may have had something to do with that so i can do a little research for you as well and uh all right let's have a pepperonata party because that's the greatest uh, thing ever. Let me. Oh, uh, uh, you know what? I'm really sad. I love Lolita. Used to have a that torchino pasta with andouille. Oh yeah, with a yeah, with a it had peas and andouille, and I don't even like peas. Yeah, and I I don't even like peas in that dish. I loved. Yeah. I that was a that was probably one of my all time top ten favorite pasta dishes in Portland. Yep, I am the world then, heavyweight uh, champion of removing peas from a dish with a fork. Like I can literally. Take a dish, and I can next thing you know, there's 20 peas off to the side of the bowl. You know, yeah. I find them in all the crevices. I find them in the rigatoni, in the pasta. They're hiding in there because I mm. still don't like them. <laughs> yeah. But uh, my, my yeah. dad would tell you a story. I used to, 
with 10 I used to eat my peas and put them in my pants pockets and oh my god I used to mash mine in the newspaper and hide them on the couch yeah yeah we're both we're both so mature you know that's the thing it's, well it's not our fault that fr- like, it's always like the frozen peas like I don't mind like sugar snap peas or like fresh garden pea you know like but like frozen peas just don't taste good I don't know why people like them I don't get it it's like why do people eat that orange squash in the can at Thanksgiving? It's literally that thing was like gag before I even knew what a gag reflex was. That was how I figured out what mine felt like. Was with that that squash was disgusting. Joe, let me just say thank you for having me. You are an institution of Portland. All that you've done for so many years, you are a character to say the least. And um, your presence is always welcome in any place I'm at. I always love seeing you. You got a sense of humor unmatched. Um, and I, I, I just, uh, it, I'm, I'm happy just to know who you are and be in your good graces. Thank you for coming with me. Thank you very much, man. I the feeling is mutual, and I love coming. I'm very excited to check out Via Vecchia. Uh, just want to thank again. Thank again. I want to thank again our guest today, uh, Joshua Miranda, owner of Blythen Burrows and soon to be Via Vecchia. Blythe Bros is also uh, a sponsor of our show, which we appreciate very much. Um, and so we're all looking forward to checking that out in the future. Uh, in the meantime, I'm Joe Riccio, and this is the Food Coma Podcast. Food Coma.